0: Welcome to episode 347 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse.
1: And I'm Tony. And we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters.
0: Oh, the sky comes falling down for you. There's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Happy summer. Well, like officially summer by way of our own podcasting calendar, because we've decided that we're going to do this really great summer series it's a little bit private prayer it's all things the lord's prayer and so i'm just dubbing this the summer of prayer and the summer of the disciples prayer that our lord and savior jesus christ gives to us so that's what's ahead for the summer and i think we kind of decided we're gonna treat this as if like we're sitting back on the deck chair as it were looking out into the ocean and just really meditating enjoying this prayer so no matter what our schedule holds for us this summer, because it tends to be busy and a little bit complicated sometimes, no matter what, we're just going to be taking our time and really enjoying this prayer.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm stoked to do this. And I think there's such a richness in the reformed tradition on reflecting on the Lord's prayer. Um, Not that there is not a richness in other traditions. I'm just not super familiar with them, but the The Reformed confessional tradition um, has significant chunks of the uh, catechetical documents devoted to understanding what it is God wants to teach us in this prayer that he gave us through his son's ministry. And I I don't know about you, but coming out of a sort of a broadly evangelical background, the Lord's Prayer was sort of almost seen a little skeptically at times. Like it's... It's seen sometimes as like, well, yeah, I mean, it's the Lord's prayer, but like, we really only do that when we do communion. And I'm just excited to talk about it because there's so much more there to it than just like, this is a rote prayer that we say when we do communion right. or at a special service or something like that. There really is a richness to it that I think just nourishes the soul when you really dig into it. So I'm stoked. I'm super stoked. I'm also, still stole
0: my word. I'm also above average stoked. That's what I was going to say in response to your comments there. And again, the fact of the matter is we're going to spend a lot of time taking, and these are, these are really technical terms, chunks yes. or nuggets,
1: <laughs> nuggets of
0: the prayer and just letting ourselves float in those words. Yeah. And so okay. it may feel like we're spending a lot of time, but that's purposeful because there is so much, but it's hot, at least in the Northern hemisphere, you're supposed to slow down. It's supposed to have that cool drink in hand and reflect, sit out on the porch, take a look at your surroundings, be observant, enjoy and be reflective. And so that's really what we have planned. So this is going to be a whole summer of doing exactly that. And I hope everybody will just pull up, go, go get your beach chair and your Bible and
1: join us. Yes. Yeah. I thought it was going to be way more exciting when I said it, but it, it just, I mean, I'm excited, but in like a super chill, mellow kind of way. Yeah, it's the summer awesome. of, of prayer. It's the summer of the Lord's prayer.
0: Summer of the Lord's prayer. I love it. So with that being said, speaking of other like chill things, Let's affirm some stuff. What are you affirming with on this episode?
1: Yeah, so I've um I think I've affirmed this before, but I'm digging back into this commentary series. This is like a coconut oil affirmation, I think. For those of you who don't know what that is, you'll have to listen to more I'm, than 50% of the episodes to understand it. Uh achievement unlocked, I guess. Um I'm affirming the ESV exegetical commentary series. Uh it's a series of 12 volumes. Um they are kind of your straightforward um, commentary series. Um, If you were to take the study notes in your average study Bible, like the ESC study Bible or the Reformation, um, the Reformation study Bible from Ligonier, if you were to take those study notes and kind of like expand them out to maybe like, I don't know, 150% more than what's there, and maybe make them just a tad bit more technical, that's what you're gonna get in the ESV commentary series. So um, I'm I'm digging back in because I'm using the ESV commentary series as a, sort of my primary commentary that I'm uh, consulting as I'm preaching through the book of James. Um, but it's a straightforward commentary set. It is written from that sort of, um, you might wanna call it like the gospel coalition reformed perspective. It's sort of that big tent reformed theology perspective. Um, so there are some things that might get a little squirrely in there that not all of our listeners would be super appreciative of. Uh, but just like any other commentary series, you you have to sort of be discerning and recognize that everybody's writing from a perspective and and nobody is writing from the exact same perspective as you. And that's actually a, a good thing. That's by design. So they're not super cheap. They're probably $30 or $40 um, per volume. Some of the bigger ones are maybe $50. But if you are the kind of person that wants to do serious Bible study, Um, there are all sorts of great commentaries that are free. I mean, Calvin's commentary series is free, Matthew Henry for free. There's a lot of free commentary series. So you certainly don't have to spend money, but if you want to make sort of like an entry level investment in a good commentary series, this is probably a, a good one to look at. It's not going to be as expansive as like the one where there's a single volume, you know, one of those ones where there's a single volume for each book of the Bible. This one is a multi, multi book of the Bible volume, um, there aren't, I don't think there are any that cover just a single volume, except perhaps the remaining volume on the Psalms probably is just Psalms. Um, but it's worth it's worth investing a little bit of money. And the way that it's structured is it has kind of a general overview of the text with an outline, which I really appreciate. Then it does your sort of typical commentary breakdown where it goes through verse by verse or or Pericope by pericope. And then it has a section at the end called response where it's really kind of like a theological summary. And that's really kind of geared towards like if you were preaching this text, what are the what are the high points you'd want to hit on? So it's valuable if you're doing your own personal Bible study. It's really valuable if you're kind of starting out as a preacher like I am, um, to just sort of have a resource like this. So check it out. It's I I think it's good. It's available in Logos, you can know, get an ebook. I mean, it's available in all the different mediums. I have the hard copies there. As Jesse and I like to say, they're a handsome volume. They're nice, big, thick, black commentaries. Um, Very classic looking. But um, yeah, check it out.
0: I love a good set of handsome books. Yes. Handsome matching books. When you get those volumes together, they're just snuggled up against one another on your bookshelf. You can't help but look at them in a kind of admiration and say, my goodness, you are good looking. (laughs) I say that to my bookshelf every day. what I'm saying? So I'm with you. We've long said commentaries are your friends. Basically long before there was chat GPT, which would help you distill down theoretically some kind of concept or idea, there were commentaries. And they're a lovely resource. There's so many of them, which means you have to be a little bit discerning, of course, when you select them. But it does mean like they're more accessible than ever. Like you said, you can find the free ones. like Matthew Henry and John Calvin. Fantastic works. And I think the best thing about them is it's like having this compendium it's like having theologians on retainer for you and so like i think maybe the average person or like the lay person might say like what do i need those for it's just lovely to have them at the ready so that when you're doing your own devotions or like you're just thinking about something and you're like you know what i'd like to get a second opinion on this or first one for that matter they're just a great to have so uh, my preference is to put those bad boys right in your Logos Bible software because that means they're super accessible. I have some of those open even now as I speak. And that's just become for me the default way. It's just so easy to get a second opinion. And really, that's the best way to use them, isn't it? Like read the yeah. text, go through the text, and then say, hey, I wonder what so and so has to say about this. So I'm with you. Like let them be your friends and your resource. And I think you'll find them useful even just in your time of personal daily worship.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know Calvin's commentaries are short enough. These are short enough that you could just add them to your daily Bible reading as a as oh, a devotional sure. aid, and they're they're approachable enough that um, they're not going to like you're not going to have to understand a lot of Greek. They make reference to to the different Greek things, and what's really helpful about a commentary as opposed to just like a study Bible. Uh, I've got no problem with study Bibles, but the the difference, the biggest difference, is that. A good commentary, and the ESV one that I'm referencing does a good job. Calvin, not as much, just because of the the historical setting of it. Um, although he does a little bit. Um, they're actually going to help you understand some of the text, sort of textual questions and challenges too. So, just for example, the section of James that I'm preaching out of this week, there's a really strange phrase that we we honestly it's it's unclear how to translate it, and it's because the word spirit is. This is going to get a little bit technical. The word spirit is a neuter noun in Greek. And so the subject case and the object case are identical to each other. So it's not true that it's ambiguous uh, as far as like, is it a subject or an object? It can't be both, but the form of the, the word doesn't help you. And so in this particular text, it's not clear whether the word spirit is a referent, is the object or the subject. And that obviously changes the sense of the text. So a good commentary set will help you to understand that. And that will help you to understand why. Like in this particular instance, the NIV is translated very, very differently than the ESV, and it's because the NIV is taking the is taking the approach that the word spirit is the subject of the sentence, and the ESV is taking the sense that the word spirit is the object of the sentence. So it, it's good to have that if you're looking to dig a little bit deeper, and especially if you're going to be, you know, there are a lot of people out there who have an occasion to enter the pulpit from time to time. Um, you know, maybe maybe they're a, a lay elder at their church or they're training for the ministry, and they haven't had the opportunity to study Greek yet, um, or even someone like me who studied Greek, but it's been many years, and i'm I'm very rusty. It's important to understand those underlying text questions. And so a good commentary set will really help you do that
0: for sure. Again, just amazing resource to have yeah. at the ready. So I my affirmation is a little bit different. It's more it's, I would say at the philosophical level. And I just had the opportunity, well, it's been going on for a couple of weeks now. I'm 42, soon to be 43 years old. And uh, I finally decided it was time after some other things had been completed in my life and God had brought to an end a certain season of studying that I was going to finally learn how to play the piano. So I'm affirming with... Being a beginner at something from time to time, this is such a good thing. And it's such a reminder of how good God is to us and how we are always as children and children are always learning and learning is tough and it's always humbling and a little bit humiliating. So I'm just saying for all of our listeners, go find something to be a beginner at. As we get older, we tend to double down on the things that we know and we're accomplished at because, of course, why yeah. wouldn't we? We have interest in those things probably for good reason. And maybe it's a turn of mind or turn of personality, which draws us to them and we get good at them. But it's so easy to forget there's so many great things to learn and to try and to do. And whether that's a new hobby or a new instrument or a new topic, I'm just affirming with it is great to be a beginner from time to time at something, no matter where you are in life.
1: Yeah, that's great. And I think, um, you know, from a theological perspective, that applies to like theological things, too. We all have we all have or most of us have kind of our our uh like our passion topic that we're really really energetic about and it's beneficial to spend a little bit of time reading something that you're not super familiar with I saw a, an interesting Facebook post the other day uh, from last Lanfear. it was like he arose out of the mist and popped into the pub again which he doesn't do as often as he used to and he just popped in a post that was like uh, what's something that you feel like what's something theologically that you don't understand and he he said i i don't understand what natural theology is i don't, I don't really know what that means and and like to me that was a really good example of like like christian humility just to just acknowledge like, i don't really fully understand this topic but we all have those topics where we probably we either don't understand them at all or we we are very much novices um it's not always good to spend all your time studying the things you already know theologically, right. especially. So for me, like this, this section on the Lord's prayer is really good because I haven't spent a lot of time in the ca- this portion of the catechisms. I spent a lot of time in the first half, uh, which is really the doctrinal section. Um, not as much time, but still a lot of time in the sort of 10 commandments section. And now we're getting into this uh, Lord's prayer part. And this is a part of the catechism I just haven't spent time with. So I'm stoked and excited. And I think it's just a good practice for us all to find something new once in a while to sort of be beginners. And that's a great affirmation.
0: Yeah. It's also just super fun. I mean, it challenges us. It makes us more patient and kind, empathetic toward others, especially those who are learning whether it is in something that we think we have a really good command of. We can sometimes become impatient with others because we think it should be obvious or plain or easy. But of course, that's not the case. And I've been discovering that too. And it's when you're put in a place, especially I'm taking piano you know, lessons and being taught by somebody who is accomplished. And I, you know, I already know how to read music and I've played guitar for a number of years. And even with that said, I've been humbled so many times. The place where I've been embarrassed, I've said, I'm sorry. And this was interesting is my piano teacher, who is very accomplished in her own right, said to me recently, you know what's interesting? And I was like, what? Because I was trying to do something. And I was getting a little bit frustrated, honestly, that I was not, my fingers were not doing what I wanted them so desperately to do. And she teaches both adults and children. And she said, you know what's interesting? Is that children don't have the problem that you're having now? And I was like, Well, thanks. I appreciate that. <laughs> She's like, no, no, no. What I mean is that children don't have a problem with failure. That is, you know, like they, they miss the notes or they don't get the fingering quite right. And they say, Okay, let me just try it again. No problem. But adults come into this thinking they have yeah. to perform effectively right away. And especially people that know something about music feel that they must perform at a certain level right away. And she said, You just need to let that go. I thought, That is such great advice in so many ways. So being afraid to fail, being afraid to ask the questions, you get that place in life where you're like, I feel like everybody else knows this, maybe even this theological thing, maybe this reformed theological thing, and I'm too afraid to ask now. Don't do that. Like, we should all be in a place where we're reminded it's okay to ask. And that really, there is no dumb question when we're trying to understand something. and. That is what it means to be a beginner, is to recognize that you just don't know. Yeah. And we can't possibly know all the things. Even in theology, we can't know all the things. So I'm definitely doubling down now as I speak about this whole beginner thing. Everybody should try it out. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm all about that. Are you ready to be negative?
1: I am. I am. Do you have
0: a really good denial?
1: Because I, I think mine is weak. So I'm, I'm curious if you have a really I strong. I mean, I don't know if it's really good, there. but I think it might be something people resonate with. So mm-hmm. I, okay. I mentioned before on the show that I'm, I've am i embarked on this process of kind of recataloging and reorganizing my bookshelves. Um, and it actually sort of is kind of like a, a, a little bit of like a meditation moment in the morning where I add a new book to my bibliography and I reorganize everything to fit it in. But right now I'm denying bookshelves uh, because this is partially my own, uh, my own, I don't want to call it OCD. Cause I, I actually, I know some people that have OCD and that can be actually really insulting, but it's something akin to that on a very small level. I'm looking at my bookshelf right now. And this morning I, I recently picked up Matthew Barrett's uh, reformation, uh, it, uh, the reformation as renewal, which is his newest book, which is massive. It's like, it's like 950 pages. Well, I don't know about how your bookshelves are organized. Mine are organized alphabetically by author. And so when I buy a large book by someone whose last name starts with a B, it's a it's a project to like get it in everything there. everything off. Yeah. And Matthew Barrett, and maybe I, maybe Ooh. this is a denial of Matthew Barrett in the long run. His book has caused me to have to split several sets of books across different Shelves oh, and different bookshelves not so acceptable. a, a broccoli is on different shelves. Volume one and two is on one shelf, and volume two and three is on a different shelf. My reform confession sets on a different shelf. My set of gamble is on a different shelf and, and I'm just i I want uh I don't know what it is, but I want like I don't know I shouldn't uh, so there's a there's a movie that no one should watch, but I've seen it, and it's called Bruce Almighty and the re- I think everybody knows why we shouldn't watch this. <laughs> But there's a scene in the in the show where Bruce, who is um, he is confronted by God. He gets the opportunity to basically live in a sort of limited sense as God does for a week. And he has this period where like he gets a book. Sh- he's got like a drawer or something. And it's like the files of all of his life. And the files are like they push way out, like further than they should. go. On. I kind of want something like that like an infinite drawer for my books so that I never have to deal with books being on different shelves where I can just pull it out. It'll come out as far as it wants. Maybe it's like a, I don't know, like a lazy Susan for books, like a rotating bookshelf. But yeah, this, I should post a picture of this because it's just driving me crazy. So now I'm faced with either the option of having one chunk of books. There's that technical term chunk, one chunk of books that is, is together as a collection but not properly alphabetized or I have to have uh, the books that are all properly alphabetized, but di- a full set doesn't fit on one shelf. And I just, it's like the impossible decision. It's the Kobayashi Maru for any of the Star Trek fans out there. It's the unwinnable scenario. There's no good answer.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, you lost me the Star Trek reference, yeah, but rant over, I, I
1: guess, I
0: understand <laughs> I understand what you're talking about so what you're basically saying here is when you say new shelf you're talking about a different shelf in the same bookshelf not like side- by side bookshelves where you've crossed over the divide both. And you're on the same
1: it's happened it, both of those things have happened in this and it, it's Matthew Barrett's fault <laughs> so I'm gonna have to find him and, and tell him that he needs to buy me a bigger bookshelf so I both have books that have now split from one down to the next shelf so my books start top left to bottom right go alphabetical and they go down the shelf I have books that have split from one shelf down to the lower shelf sets of books that have done that and I also have a set that has now moved from the very bottom right to the last position on my first bookcase to the first position on the next bookcase it's next it's chaos it's just total chaos <laughs> I don't know what to do about it Jesse I'm really disturbed
0: I mean, I think this is like we always say, this some way reveals the profound character of God that we not only just like order. So here we have almost, we have sin maybe manifest and it's like really odious colors because it is a perversion of all things good, of course, right? Sin always emanates from that kind of definition. This is a perversion Um, of all things good. Yes. So like you have this this idea of like organizing the books and there's a beauty in that. Right. But what we're saying is like, we want them also to be all together among themselves. Right. So, but when you say that I want, I'm still ordering them alphabetically. And yet even in that ordering, it is less than satisfactory to have them divided among either the same plane, but be separated by two different shelves or bookcases or to go down to another level. We find this to be like egregious. So Like, Because what you described by way of the
1: example of Bruce Almighty is the bookshelf of heaven. Right. Right? (laughs) I didn't intend to do that, but yes, I guess I have. Now that I'm looking at it, I think I may have found a solution as I've pondered this for the last five-minute rant or however long this has been. Maybe instead of thinking of these as distinct bookshelves, I need to think of my three bookcases as a composite bookshelf. So I can go all the way across the top shelf yeah, you should and try to do then that. go down to the next one. Yes. But now I'm going to have to reorganize the whole thing. And then you, you know what's going to happen. I'm going to do all of that. And it's still going to happen. And it's still going to be Matthew Barrett's fault.
0: Yeah, I think you really need to ponder whether these books that you hold in great esteem, but of which the author's names appear in the beginning of the alphabet, how worthy they are to be purchased and add to the collection.
1: Yeah, I think maybe next time. So once this project's done, how it is going to affect my bookshelf is going to be a major deciding factor, I think, as to whether I purchase a hard copy or whether I purchase an electronic copy. Yes. If I'd have known that Matthew Barrett was going to do this to me, I probably would have bought an electronic version of this book. My great hope
0: is that somehow, in some way, he finds access to this episode. Because his name is already even mentioned more here than any other time.
1: Yeah, so. I'm sure somebody out there has a connection to him and can send it to him. The funny thing about this is there are probably a lot of people in the world that would listen to this rant and be like, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I can't believe you're getting worked up about this. And I'm willing to bet that 0% of our audience falls into that category. Everyone in our audience is like, yes, I understand. I am so sorry for your loss because... I get it. I know how this feels. Yeah,
0: well, I'm just going to pivot then and do a quick deny against that is of the book variety so as to either resonate or trigger people. And I am I know, listen, loved ones, I know when you purchase a book, it is your own. You sense that it becomes your possession. And even as you love it, you love it in a way as your possession. You may feel you may feel entitled, actually to say, listen, I'm reading this great page. I want to save this in perpetuity. So I'm going to fold over the corner of that page. And as I say, dog ear it. And I'm denying against that all day, every day, and twice on the Lord's Day. So I just can't get behind that. You and I have talked already about what people do, what each of us do with dust covers. But this to me is like a whole other level. Just love and respect and cherish the book. Please don't be folding over The pages.
1: Yeah. No, don't just don't. There are better ways to accomplish that, that don't involve mutilating your books. (laughs) Although I will say I used to feel that way about highlighting in books. I used to be very, very opposed. I know I'm I'm pro highlighter. Um, I used to be very opposed to marking in your books. And that was why I used like digital note taking and stuff is because I didn't want to do that. I even for a time had this little like scan device that I could scan the words and it would transfer. I remember them. this. I returned to that because it it worked like junk. It was terrible. But um, yeah, I, I'm a, I'm on board with highlighting and, and annotating now. But yeah, don't dog ear your books. Just spend like the like the, the the 50 cents to buy some post-it flags, post-it note flags from Amazon. Just don't. Your books deserve better than that.
0: And again, people may be thinking like this seems like a definition without distinction. Like who cares? What's the difference between like slapping a little sticker in there versus I, listen, it's our affirmations and denials, so we can choose what we want. And I'm saying this with great respect still for those who do this. So my father's a better reader, a great note taker, great highlighter. I do believe you will fold over a page. I think I've seen it. I'll have to confirm that. But, uh, you know, I just think there's better ways. I don't know why. There's something within me that maybe this is sin. I have no idea. Rebels against the dog oh, earring just when wow. I see it. It's the equivalent of hearing somebody take their nails across the chalkboard. So
1: I feel like maybe you if you're I gonna dog ear it. the page, you should just rip it out and scan it. Just rip the whole page out and scan it on your computer. Because that's what you want, right? That's what you're really saying. Is right. by the way, this is like I think going back,
0: it's a deep cut, maybe, but we talked about to your point, there is an app called Highlight. Yeah. Uh, you can check that bad boy out where you just snap a photo. Of the actual page that you're reading, physical otherwise, and then you just drag your finger across the part that you want to highlight. It reads that text and drops it into a note for you. Yep. There you go. Don't even need to dog ear the page. Yeah, yeah and I think don't... most of the time, right? People are not trying to like keep the whole page. To your point, you know what I mean. It's not like right. This page is so good. I'd like to snuggle with this thing later on. Like it's just a couple words or sentence or a paragraph at most. So. There's other ways, but you triggered me with this whole talk about books and there's so much book etiquette that I don't know where it comes from or where our preferences emanate, where they originate, but they
1: are there. So yeah, I mean, there are some people out there that might say, "Who? Why do you care what I do in the privacy of my library?" And I'm like, "Because, because <laughs> the natural order of things is to not dog ear your books and to not use end notes." So there, there are a number of things that I can tolerate as just aberrant behavior with books that I can tolerate. Dog ears and end notes are just I cannot, I cannot tolerate those things.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you. So you can email us at <laughs> info at reformbrotherhood and let us know what your own personal preference is and how much you disagree with us on that. But that's okay because. We will continue to do all the things that we can do to do on this podcast, and say the things that uh, we know to be true, which is that one should never, ever, under any circumstances, dog ear their pages. Part of the reason why people can continue to listen, where there's no paywall, or you don't have to, you know, jump through hoops, or pay some kind of subscription fee, or listen to like these canned ads about, again, like purple mattresses, Squarespace, or Hello, Fresh is because we have so many listeners who give a little bit of their financial resources to make sure that the podcast remains free. And so I just want to continue to really thank everybody who's a part of The Voice, who sends emails, who leaves voicemails. And I want to thank Kenneth who joined us in becoming a Patreon subscriber, which was just giving some of their resources to make sure that the podcast remains free. If you would like to explore what that would look like, After you have filled all your obligations in sacrificial giving to your local church, you can just go to patreon.com backslash Reform Brotherhood and check us out there.
1: Yeah. And if for some reason you don't want to do a monthly donation, um, it is totally acceptable. Uh, I say this like it could be not acceptable. It's easy enough to do where you could do a one-month pledge on uh, Patreon where you sign up and then when your month is over, you just cancel your subscription or your, your pledge. So there are, there are, well, there are some rules, but the the, rules there, (laughs) there, there are no rules. That's, that's one of my favorite commercials is that subway commercial. You know what I'm talking about? Where the guy comes in and he's like, there's no rules. He starts to take off his shirt and someone from back is like, put on your shirt. And he's like, (laughs) there's one rule. Yeah. What I think is really funny about this whole this whole segment of of conversation, Jesse, is that when we say that we're going to trigger people, it's because we say don't dog tag dog ear your books. Where yes. like other people are like, we're going to trigger a few people, and then they say ridiculously offensive things. Our ridiculously offensive thing is like you probably shouldn't fold over the corner of your books because that's going to make right,
0: easy. right. Yeah, I mean everything is relative, but. That's you can expect here, and we are so thankful for those brothers and sisters that help finance this kind of triggering. So thank you so much. And as we transition then into this whole summer of prayer, a season of looking at how the Lord directs us to pray, I want to reiterate something we talked about in kind of the prologomena to this whole series, which was the last episode, which everybody should go check out. And that is, we're continuing to affirm this little challenge, the two-minute prayer. Yes, that is like the best way to build a habit, like we talked about. There's lots of great evidence evidence for this, is just do it for two minutes. And so we're encouraging everybody this season to pray along with us and to start with just two minutes, even if you just set a timer, start with two minutes. And with the Lord's Prayer in particular, make that a part, and maybe you'll just talk about a small chunk, nugget, or section like we're about to today. That's okay. Just get in there, and let's all start to pray together. And let's just do it two minutes at a time. So again, here's talk about being beginners, no matter where your prayer life is like, no matter what your prayer closet is like, let's just make a commitment to say, we're going to be beginners again yeah. and we're going to start fresh. And no matter what your habit is in this area, let's start with just two minutes.
1: Yeah, I did this this week and I got to say it was great. I mean, I, I, also, I think probably I I pray for more than two minutes a day on average, but it was good to set aside, to specifically set aside two minutes. I do it in the morning um, to pray. And for those of you, I think sometimes one of the challenges with, right, there's no magic number for prayer. It's not as though like if you pray for X number of minutes, then God is going to smile. And if you pray for less than that, then God doesn't notice. That's that's not a thing. And that's that's some ridiculous law and not the gospel. But um, it, it's healthy for us to set aside time for prayer and to, to sort of designate time for prayer. But sometimes I, what I hear from people when I talk to them, and I know something I struggle with personally, is like, what do you pray about for that time period? So what I, right. what I do every morning, I get up, I have my, my bullet journal, which I've talked about a, a thousand times. And one of the things that I do is I actually write out... What it is I'm going to pray for. So in in Logos Bible Software they have the ability to put in prayer and you can set like rotations and times. So I have different people in my congregation that I'm praying for on certain days of the week and different things that have come up or sometimes a topic comes up in the Reformed Brotherhood Telegram chat. We have a prayer request um, channel in the Telegram chat. A prayer request will come up. I'll actually like put in a link to the Telegram chat so that when I've prayed for it I can then follow up with that person and tell them I prayed for them. I will actually take time in my bullet journal to write out who it is I'm praying for and what it is I'm praying about for them. And then when I actually turn on my two minute timer to pray, I've already kind of got a roadmap. So I think sometimes, and this this ties into what I mentioned about the Lord's Prayer, sometimes we feel like prayer has to be this spontaneous improv thing. And that like, if it's thought through, or if it's pre-written, or if you're, devoting too much time to preparing for prayer that like somehow you're doing it wrong. But for me, that extra step, and it only takes, maybe it takes, I don't know, 30 seconds to a minute for me just to, to write out real quick what who it is I'm going to pray for and what it is I'm going to pray for them about. That actually makes my prayer time all that much more focused and I think effectual, not in the sense that like my preparation has made my prayers effective, but it, it helps me to not get distracted. And I think the Lord's prayer, which is what we're going into here, the Lord's prayer as a rubric or a template for prayer does the same thing on a bigger picture, right? It gives right. us this framework of things to pray for. It gives us this framework of ways to structure our prayer. And there are all sorts of acronyms and mnemonics and, and sort of like... um, templates that people use, right? There's the Acts template, adoration, confession, thankfulness, supplication, like those are all fine and well, and there's no problem with using those. But the Lord's prayer is unique in that, in that this is this divine model, this divinely inspired model that the Lord Jesus himself gave to us to teach us how to pray. And so over over the summer here, as we're going through this, we want to take you know, the, historically it's been broken up into a preface and then several different petitions. We're going to take an episode to just talk through each of those main sections. And a lot of podcasts have done this. A lot of people have written books on this. The confessions or the catechisms themselves are structured this way. So it's not as though this is some brand new scaffolding that we're constructing. But we want to talk about this because this is something that is, is I think, going to be really fruitful for my prayer life. Um, and and I have to admit there's a selfish motive in this. Um, i don't I don't feel as though my prayer life is as strong as it could be. Other elements of my Christian life, I feel like I'm making good progress, and the Holy Spirit has been very gracious to to show me that progress. For whatever reason in God's wisdom, my prayer life is one of those where I just haven't made as much progress as I would like to. So I'm excited to do this sort of series, because I think this gives us an opportunity to really dig in and really hear what the spirit has to say through this particular portion of scripture and this prayer that the Lord Jesus taught us.
0: It certainly does. And the good news is if you feel as though like every Christian that you ought to pray more and that's not as deep as you would like it to be, the good news is there's a club for you. It's called The Lord's Family, (laughs) and we all meet together at your local church on the Lord's Day. So you are absolutely in good company. And that's why we're going to start with the scriptures, of course. And I imagine, actually, that every time we talk about this throughout the summer, we're probably, I think it's good practice for us to hear the words again that Jesus gives to us. You're going to hear me, at least. I know we often talk about this as the Lord's Prayer because it is the Lord himself giving it to us, but it is really for the disciples. It's their prayer. It's our prayer. It's the prayer that the Lord's Prayer is really the one that happens in the garden this is the one that jesus gives to us as you said as an approach so i'm going to read from matthew 6 there's of course you can confer in luke in his gospel this same type of instruction is a little bit more abbreviated so i'm going with the elongated version the unabridged version if you will and while we probably will not read all of the prolegomena to this prayer every time i am going to read it since we're starting because This helps us to get to the place of what we want to talk about today. And in this episode, even as time eludes us already, we are just really going to talk about two words. So this is Matthew 6, starting in verse 6. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, Do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So there's there's so much in this. And I think like you and I could talk about these two words, the starting words, our Father, for like two hours. And so already we're going to have to be brief, which is not our jam, as everybody else knows. But... Sometimes, you know, the first word of the Lord's Prayer in our English translation is our, and this is significant, but the first word in Greek is actually pater or father. That's sometimes why you hear the Lord's Prayer called the Noster," which comes from the first two words in a Latin version of the prayer. But what we get from this right away, these two words, our father, I think we need to recognize, I think this is the proper place to start, how dramatic and shocking this is. Like we've just become so familiar with these words and the repetition, the structure the language itself, that we sometimes fail to realize how shocking it is that this is the way that Jesus prescribes his disciples to pray. And by the way, like to your point earlier, just one quick tidbit here, like you said, he says, pray like this or pray in this manner, pray this way, not pray these words. So it isn't rote. It's not meant to be the kind of thing that's so prescriptive in a narrow sense That's if you should just do this and there's some kind of magic formula by saying the exact things here, but it is a manner in which to conceive a prayer itself and intimacy with the Father. So to pray with intimacy to God as Father, this is not a human right. It's like a spiritual privilege. And I have to believe that the disciples would have understood this to be shocking language to begin with. It's a privilege for the people of God who have been born again by the Spirit of God. And that's why, of course, like John in in his first chapter of his book says things like, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So to begin with, there is like the R, which is inclusive of language of community. And then there is Father. And that is unique, even coming from the Old Testament. So I think we have to recognize it's like a stocking opening.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, what's, what's tricky about this prayer sometimes, I think this is as good of a place. So one of the nice things about the Lord's Prayer when we do these kinds of conversations is not only does it give us sort of this like rubric or this template or model for prayer, but it forces us to ask questions about the nature of prayer itself. And so when Jesus teaches us to pray our father, because it's Jesus giving us this model, we have a tendency to frame this. um, We have a tendency to frame this in like inappropriate Trinitarian frame, if that makes sense. And so when Jesus says to pray our father, he's not commanding us to exclusively pray to the Father, to the first person of the Trinity, and I think that our our confessional documents help us to understand this a little bit. So I just want to pull up what the uh, what the larger catechism says here. And this this little section, this first this first clause, "Our Father who art in heaven," this is commonly called the preface. So we're going to talk about the preface today. We're also going to talk in coming weeks about individual or distinct petitions. So the, the Lord's Prayer is broke up into this sort of like preface or like prefatory address. You might think of it in like a letter. It's the address line. And then there's the body of the letter itself. It's kind of similar to that. There's the address line of the Lord's Prayer. And then there's the body of the prayer itself. And this is what the uh, larger catechism says in question 189. It says, what does the preface of the uh, Lord's Prayer teach us? And it says, the preface of the Lord's Prayer contained in these words, our Father, which art in heaven. Teaches us when we pray to draw near to God with confidence of his fatherly goodness and our interest therein, with reverence and all other childlike dispositions, heavenly affections, and due apprehensions of his sovereign power, majesty, and gracious condescension, as also to pray with and for others. So, right. our, our catechetical confessional language helps us to understand, although I do think that the vast majority of the models we have in Scripture teach us that we pray to the first person of the Trinity through the mediation of the second person of the Trinity and in the power and the presence of the third person of the Trinity. So to the Father, through the Son or in the name of the Son, by the power or the equipping of the Holy Spirit. I think that's a, that's a valid uh, hermeneutical and Trinitarian framework for our prayer. However, because of everything we've talked about, about inseparable operations to maybe bring this to a theological frame. When we pray to the Father as the first person of the Trinity, it's not as though we're somehow excluding the second and third person of the Trinity. Exactly. And likewise, if we pray to Jesus, which is totally fine to do, or if we pray, and we have we have explicit biblical models of that, or if we pray to the Holy Spirit, which is totally fine to do, and I think we have some impl- implicit scriptural models of that, that is also still prayer that is oriented towards the whole Godhead. Because if we're asking the Father to hear us, that single act of hearing that the Father does in reference to us is also the single same act of hearing that the Son and the Spirit participate in. So we shouldn't think of this address of our Father necessarily to mean that we are only and exclusively praying to the Father. I don't want to go off on a big tangent, but this is actually one of the big critiques that I don't see leveled against EFS all that often, but probably should be leveled against them, is that because they elevate the Father as the sort of chief God of the Godhead, as opposed to the Son, who are sort of these sort of this subordinate God. Um and they wouldn't use that language, but I think theologically it works out. I don't understand why someone like Bruce Lair would ever pray to someone would ever pray to Jesus or the Holy Spirit. If all of that prayer redounds to the Father, then why wouldn't we only pray to the Father to the exclusion of the Son and Spirit? Our tradition and the biblical model Shows that that's just not the case, and so that's one of the things that this prayer teaches us is that we pray to the whole Godhead, and that the whole Godhead exercises this fatherly disposition towards towards God's people. So, so this also explains, in some senses, when you see that passage in Isaiah where Messiah is called um, the you know the uh, heavenly Father, fatherhood language is used of Messiah in in um, in Isaiah. That this helps to understand that that God acts towards his people in a fatherly way. And that's just as true as the, of the first person of the Trinity as it is of the second and the third person of the Trinity. So we don't want to get hung up on this father language in a way that causes us to be distracted from the fact that the whole Godhead is who we pray to and who we petition anytime we pray. Regardless of if we are directing our prayers to one particular person or the other, we're still praying to the whole Godhead, to the entirety of God, all three persons in in unity. Yeah, so you jumped
0: uh, dropped like a bunch of bombs there, which you came in just like hot. Like you're you were way ahead of me on that. I thought we were going to ease into that water, but we just came in right away. Like you just cannonballed <laughs> into the whole charity thing, which is which is cool. And you also dropped and, dropped something that I hope we can get to real quick. Which is why in this prayer we see that we ought to call God Father and not Mother. And yes. I'm just going to set it aside just for a second. Let's try to come back to that if we can in the time that we have, but. You're right. This is straight-up adventures in Romans 8. To call on God as Father is this gift and privilege of the triune God. It might look like the prayer involves only the first person of the Trinity, but Romans 8 is super clear that it is the Spirit of God who enables us to cry out this Abba Father, bearing witness that we are the children, we are the heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So anyone who truly prays the Lord's Prayer from the heart From a a genuine place of contrition, understanding that's been enlightened and illuminated by the Holy Spirit is demonstrating the work of the glorious Trinity in union with God the Son, God the Spirit works in our hearts. So we can call it in faith to God the Father. So it's all present there. That's the beauty of this language, right? That it is taken as default, it's taken as normative, it's taken as like the foundation, such that it's already just assumed. So when Jesus says, Pray, our Father, He's saying that the only reason you can pray our Father is because you recognize that God is triune and that the triune, the, the persons of the Godhead, the trinity of God himself is at work in you to say these words, to understand what I'm saying right now. So I think like that's super important, like you said. Only the disciples get to call God Father. So like even in the Old Testament, where the fatherhood of God is, I would say, my argument is, maybe this triggers some, less clear than like the New Testament we see that this intimate relationship of the father and his children is like the special privilege reserved for God's people. So here is some me leveraging logos real quick. 15 times the Old Testament uses father in a strictly religious sense. But in the New Testament, it's used over 245 yeah. times. Yeah. So what was occasionally present in this Old Testament, this is why it's shocking, what was occasionally present in manifesting the Old Testament becomes now like this central theme in the New Testament, namely that by God's initiative, we can approach him as father. And that's again why, like this is John's jam. Like everything John writes is about like the love of God and the manifest love of God by his giving of his son such that we might have intimacy with him. Even the title that we use, that is an extension or made more clear or made more magnified in this New Testament post the cross. So that's why in 1 John 3, he writes, see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. So the calling of us as children of God starts with the kind of love the Father gives. And of course, that love is manifest and made explicit in the giving of his Son. So here you have like, this is like my mind during a somersault. Jesus, who is the gift, is the word, coming and teaching his disciples to pray by saying, say, say, I command you, call God your Father together. It's again, I can't get over the shockiness. And again, within that shock, is the fact that I think the disciples will understand the triune nature of what he's asking them and calling them to participate in.
1: Yeah. Yeah. One other element too, that I think um, follows on that nicely. So while it is true um, that we are not limited to particular prescribed prayers. So that that's one of the main differences. I think sometimes Christians have a challenge understanding Islam because we think Islam is basically just Christianity, but it's a different God. Like It's a different frame of reference. Islam is 100% different in nature. And one of the one of the differences is prayer in Islam is recitation. So, right. so Muslims don't have the flexibility and freedom to pray extemporaneously to Allah. That's just not part of their religion. The, the idea that we would commune with God on this interpersonal level, in this semi-casual level where we get to speak to God right. out of our own heart, that's a radically different... Uh, a different perspective in Christianity as opposed to, to Islam. However, all of that said, Christ does command us to pray this prescribed prayer. And so while it's true that the, the prayer is a model, when you look at what he says in Luke, he doesn't say, when you pray, pray like this. That's closer to what he says in Matthew. But right. what he says in, in Luke is, when you pray, say. And so one of the things that I, I personally am convicted of um, and whether you use the, the specific structure that's in Luke or you use the structure that's in Matthew, most of us who have memorized the Lord's Prayer, we memorize the structure that's in Matthew, not the, the version that's in Luke. What I want to emphasize though, is that there is a command from the Lord to use a prescribed a prescribed structure of prayer. There's no frequency that's assigned to that. but it does say when you pray, say, so if you find yourself to be one of those Christians that never actually prays the words of the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, that's something you really need to think through. And this goes back to what we were saying in in uh, the two minute challenge here, right? Sometimes the struggle in prayer is not necessarily the desire to pray, pray, or the focus that's required to pray, or the time set aside to pray. It's sort of like the mental the mental load of what is it that I pray about? Well. Mm. There's a number of written prayers in the Bible itself and this is one that we're commanded to pray. And I'm not going to be I don't want to be like legalistic like if you don't save if you don't memorize this in the original Greek and pray it in Greek then you're really sinning. Like I'm not that guy. I actually have run into people who've made arguments like that. But God has given us this model prayer and I have to think that part of it is is exactly what, you know, what what is said about prayer in Romans. We don't even know how to pray sometimes. And so sometimes it's as simple as saying, I don't know how to pray, but Christ has given me not just a model, but an inspired prayer that is powerful and efficacious and and hits hits all of the points of what prayer is. I'm just going to pray that. So maybe this is something to add on to the two-minute challenge is if you're struggling for what to pray for, devote some time to memorizing the Lord's Prayer this week if you haven't right either memorize the version in Luke which is a little bit shorter or memorize the version in Matthew which is is what most of the time when people are going to say let's pray the Lord's prayer whether you're visiting a church and they do it for communion sunday or if if you're at like an easter service or a, a good friday service and we do the Lord's prayer most of the time it's the version that's in Matthew take some time and memorize that and if you if you regularly devote yourself to praying that prayer as part of this two-minute challenge, it's actually I think it actually is gonna change your prayer life. And I think what you're gonna find is that this prayer becomes a launching off point for other other more personalized extemporaneous prayer that sort of flows naturally out of it. So I think that this preface is so important for us to really get, because it it sort of sets the whole tone for the rest of the prayer, right? If God is our God, if God is our Father, and then if if he's in heaven, which is not just about the location of God, which we know God is not localized. It's not as though he's in heaven and not in earth, but he's he's in heaven in a particular way, and that that is his. We'll get into this in the coming weeks, but that's sort of like his realm that is, is devoted to him and, and operating exactly according to his will, as opposed to earth, which is operating not necessarily according to his perceptive or prescriptive will at this point, that says something about why we pray too. It's because God is our father, yes, but also it's because he's in heaven. He's the sovereign of the universe. So those two things together, this preface sets up not just who it is that we pray to, but why it is that we can have confidence that our prayers can be answered because he is not only our father, but he is our father who is in heaven. Those two things work in this beautiful harmony together that we miss if we don't really think through these kind of clause by clause.
0: Yeah. Don't bring in the other two words yet. Like that's our that's a whole other episode. We don't even have time for this episode. That's a whole other episode.
1: It is what it is. We can do it's whatever not. we want. We can do a hundred episodes on this preface. If
0: yeah, no, but that, that's a whole other thing, which we'll get because again, like these deserve to be treated in like these discrete increments like these chunks that that's like a whole that is a whole nother nugget right there
1: doesn't like hershey's have a mini like bite-sized candy bar called nuggets? they do they're it's yeah. weird because they're not shaped i wouldn't call them nuggets if i just looked at the shape
0: i'm not sure what a nugget shape to like me a, the, a
1: nugget is a is like a non-regular shape you're talking like a gold nugget it's any amorphous. kind of like a chicken nugget or a gold nugget a, i guess like a devotional nugget It's just like a, like a non-defined shape. It's an irregular shape.
0: Yeah. So somewhere along the way, my uh, wife started calling your, you know, son who's over a year old, a nugget, chicken nugget. I'm not sure where that started.
1: I don't know, but he's not a regular shape. Not that he's like unusually shaped. He's quite (laughs) proportional, but he's not like a square. He doesn't have like right angles.
0: There's something like ad- adorable and endearing about applying like the word the word nugget and that and that's the way I'm using it here. so yeah, I'm totally with you on this. I think what's interesting is in all of life in many things in all kinds of activities and approaches, there's like a right way to begin. there's like a best way to begin oftentimes. and so it's interesting to me that Jesus says this is the best way to begin and it's I think you're right on this, and I think we ought to adopt this maybe even in a more like narrowly prescriptive sense, he says start by saying our father, our father and Part of that, I think, is this recognition that God is communal, that we are a people that are together. He doesn't say pray my father, but our father. So there's this sense that the family is real and the family comes together, even when he's talking about private prayer, which is fascinating to me. He says, like, when you are alone, make sure that you are identifying in the way that you speak to me as somebody who is a child that's part of a family. And I think that is challenging for many of us who might feel that spirituality in some sense can be compartmentalized into the individual. And so Jesus is saying, that's not the way you address our father. He's also identifying, of course, with his disciples when he says this. So there's like humanity of Jesus coming to play in a special way with how he's saying is the right way to start it. So I've tried to do this myself, honestly, is that if God says, this is the way you ought to begin, like, can we improve upon that? Like, is there a way? There is no other way. Like yeah. we ought to just accept that God says, start with saying our father. And I think that's, it's a great reminder because when we hear it, even when we pray either privately in our own minds or publicly out loud, if we are hearing ourselves say this word, it reinforces something very special about what it means to be saved and redeemed. So then let's go here real quick, because again, you brought like two other words into it. We don't even have time for those bad <laughs> boys. We're going to get to them. So incidentally, This is why it's the same thread why we cannot substitute mother for father. Now, of course, like the Bible does describe God with maternal characteristics. So like Isaiah 49, speaking about like a tender nursing mother or like a hen brooding over her young. That's it later in Matthew in chapter 23. We don't have to be embarrassed using those same sort of images, but that is not at all the same as naming God as mother. So God, of course, like this is Theology 101, God is spirit. He doesn't have a body. He does not have a biological gender. He's not male or female. Throughout scripture, he reveals himself. This is God revealing himself to us as king, as a husband, and as a father, but never as a queen or wife or mother. We don't have a warrant to pray to God in ways that we think sound better or more culturally attuned or advanced or our world thinks are more appropriate. The act of naming is inherent act naming Adam, Adam naming Eve. We would be greatly presumptuous to think that we could give God a new identity and a new name without doing violence to revelation and usurping God's divine prerogatives. So this is not about the spirit of men or women. It's simply the way in which God has chosen to reveal himself. And this is like, I think one of the things in our entire podcast catalog is making sure that God's word has hegemony, even over our logic. And so here's just a way God has said, this is who I am. When you pray, pray, our father, not our mother, not some like weird confluence between the two, not some weird amalgam of both those things. He says, pray as our father.
1: yeah yeah and and you know one of the things that I think is really key, right I don't I don't want to get I'm not interested, not because I don't have perspectives on this, but I just it's not really where I want to go on the whole question of transgenderism like that's just not something I'm interested in in hammering out on this show. All of that said though, it's really crazy. It's really, really, really crazy to think that when Jesus said our father, that he really meant our parent. So e- even if we right. try to like soften it, and, and this is actually a critique I have of a lot of Bible translations. Um, the, the gendered language of the Bible reflects the culture of the time that the Bible was written. And so, when we come along in the twentieth or twentieth twenty first century, and try to flatten that gendered language out to be either, right. um, either inclusively gendered language, right? So you see some translations that will say instead of saying brothers, let will say brothers and sisters, or or somehow neutralize that. So maybe like um, one of the frustrations I have is there's a passage we memorized as a church that actually the NIV is a better than the ESV because it, it uses the gendered language of, of the scriptures in the translation. And then like the ESV says, like this is profitable for people instead of profitable for men. Now, uh, of course, when it says it's profitable for men, it also includes the women in the congregation. The Lord's Prayer starts out, our father. And if we try to sort of flatten that out to be our parent, Right. If even if we don't go all the way to saying our mother and instead we say our parent and we, we neuter that and make it a non gendered reference, we've actually eliminated part of what the scripture has to say about God. And as you've said, like the scripture does not present God as a biological male. Right. But the fact that the scripture consistently and predominantly uses masculine pronouns and, and beyond masculine pronouns. Masculine examples of who God is, right? World. When you talk about a warrior, right? unless you're watching a lot of like Xena Warrior Princess or Wonder Woman, which I'm not. Uh, I mean, I've seen Xena Warrior Princess, but it's not my favorite show or anything. Unless you're using a lot of that, like a warrior figure is almost always considered to be a male. If you take a hundred people and say, draw a picture of a warrior, they're going to draw a picture that includes male features. That's not, not a non issue in the scriptures. So I don't want to get into all of the details and all of the arguments about, about that whole thing. Um, it's not that we don't have perspectives. It's not that we haven't shared those perspectives. I think we've been pretty clear that we're, we're pretty straightforward complementarians and that we believe men and women are different and there are different, different fittednesses to different roles in society and in the home and in the church, um, but we can't just flatten out the gendered language that the scripture uses. And so that's important. And maybe because I'm a father now, and I understand this in a more experiential way, there are very distinct differences between how mothers and fathers operate in reference to their children. And this is something that the social sciences have observed and there's studies that prove this. So one of the things, this this doesn't directly apply, but it's just an example that proves the point. Fathers are significantly more likely to carry their children with their children facing outward, uh, out into the world, just in terms of the way they carry them. Some of that is actually physiological in the way that that male bodies are shaped. It, It inclines them to carry children faced outward, where mothers are much more inclined, both emotionally and mentally, but also in terms of their physical body, to carry children facing inward. Those are biological differences that also have emotional and mental sort of outflows. That's a real feature that social sciences has observed. So we should be very careful in the scriptures and in our understanding of God and in our speaking about God to not understand why the scripture has used those languages, that, that, that kind of language. And the, the Lord's Prayer here encourages us and commands us to go to God, not as mother, not as some of some sort of neutral a, amorphous parent right. but as father and and we'll maybe tease some of what that means out in future episodes but for now i think it just it just stands to to share the point that's significant that's a big deal fathers right provide on. for their children and care for their children differently than mothers do that's not to say that in a in in sort of the human realm, that fathers are better than mothers or more necessary than mothers or anything like that. But fathers are not mothers and mothers are not fathers. So when we pray to God, we pray to him as father. He has a fatherly influence over us, not necessarily a motherly influence over us. And I think that's a key point. In this opening, these two words,
0: our father, to me, it's a shot across the bow from Jesus, the son, to say, remember who you're talking to in prayer. He puts the prayer into this most intimate of family terms. It's not first about proper protocol. You know, like when we know to whom we're talking, the right approach will follow. So God is not like a roommate. He's not a cosmic Butler. He's not even your significant other. He's not like just this casual friend but neither are we told to pray to him as like a dictator or like a parole officer, some kind of weird, harsh taskmaster. Like we have to plead with him against his better judgment to right. listen to us. And so I think this should inform like our two-minute prayers that we're about to put into practice. When we feel tempted to be distracted, when we get bored, it's helpful to remember that it is our father together, our father who wants to listen to us, yeah, who draws near to us. In this, we have like the perfect confluence of what is imminent and transcendent. And now I'm getting into the latter two words of in heaven. But the whole point is we have this lovely invitation, Hebrew style, Romans 8 style, to come before the God of the universe. And this is why I would say this, as we kind of draw this to an end, why it is so incredibly shocking. The God who made the world out of nothing, like the God of, of all of our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the 10 plagues in the Red Sea, the God of the glory cloud in the tabernacle, the God who rolls up the waters like a garment, who holds the wind in his fists, who speaks to the earth and shakes the cedars of Lebanon, the God who showed himself to Daniel as the great ancient of days, the God before, before whom no one can stand face to face and live. And Jesus wants us, he commands us to say to this God, call him our father. Yeah. And so I think like, that is what's so shocking to me. It is an amazing, the most prolific and profound start to any kind of instruction on prayer that could possibly can be conceived of. And I love that that's where Jesus places us and where we get to start our summer.
1: Yeah. Yeah. One, one last thought that I'll, I'll add to this, and I think that this needs to be the starting point for all of our Christian reflection on prayer, is there is never a time that God does not want to answer your prayers, right right and, and we can talk about that theologically, right We could talk about that in terms of God's God's will never changes and his will is always always to answer the prayers of His people in a way that is is in accord with His will and for His glory and for their good. Like that is always God's desire because God is God is who God is and that desire is part of who He is so god is always for his children he's always for his children but one of the things that i've learned and this this actually surprised me as as a, a new father um you know when you're when you're reading all the baby books and you're talking to your your friends and your peers who have become parents and you think about what it's like to have a baby one of the things that i think a lot of parents are nervous about and fathers are nervous about is like that they're going to be annoyed by their children like they're going to be annoyed by the crying they're going to not be able to deal with all the crying and all the asking There has never been a point where I have seen something that my son wants or needs and not had a passionate desire to give that to him. Right? There are times where I'm frustrated because I don't know what he needs, where he's crying and I don't understand what it is that would satisfy him. But there has never been a second where I've thought, I know he wants this, but I just, just really don't want to give it to him. There's never been a moment for that. And how much more perfect is our Father in heaven? And there's a, this is the reason or one of the reasons why God reveals himself as a fatherly God. And right? I'm talking about the whole Godhead. The, one of the reasons he reveals himself as a fatherly God, and Jesus uses this example in his teaching on prayer, that when we come to God with a prayer or a request or a desire that is agreeable to his will, is for his glory and serves our good, he is passionately desirous to fulfill that prayer. He, right. he wants to, and there is never a time, just as there's never a time that when I know my son's need or I know my son's desire, that I am not passionately seeking to fulfill that. How much more does our father in heaven desire to do what is good and right and profitable for his sons and daughters? I think if we can get our head around that feature of what the Lord is teaching us in the Lord's model prayer, it will radically change our prayer life. God wants to answer your prayers and give you what you desire and give you what you need. Now, we have corrupt desires, so that may be something that we will talk about. And I know it's something we'll talk about as we go through the series. What about the prayers that we pray that are not agreeable to his will, that are not good for us, things that we desire that are not beneficial to us or don't bring God to glory? We will talk about that. But when we pray in a way that is is desirable to to meet God's glory and to bring him honor and to to satisfy our needs and to, to be fulfilling desires of ours that come from our place of righteous desire and trust in the Lord, God delights to answer those prayers. And that that's something that I think, again, I think will just really change the way we think about prayer. If we really, really understand that.
0: For sure. There's so much to learn here. Again, we're all beginners when it comes to prayer. I've learned a lot. Part of what I've learned is that Tony wants to tease every single episode that we're going to do (laughs) on this entire series in this one episode. And so even though there are no rules, it feels like we're a little bit past the time that we normally impose on all our listeners. So I think that this has been a lovely beginning, dare I say, like the definitive beginning. There's so much here. I guess it can't be definitive because we recognize that you should all be having your own conversations with your pastors, your elders, and each other, and all of us about what it means to come under our Father in prayer and to speak with Him. But what we know for certain is to have this great access is not a human right. It is amazing spiritual privilege. And so it's good to start there because then again, of course we see ourselves as beginners.
1: It's true. It's true. Well, Jesse, I think that's as good of a place for us to stop. Maybe stop is not the right place. That's as good of a place (laughs) for us to pause until next week. And Jesse, until next week, honor everyone. Love that brotherhood.